Hey everybody, it's August 10th, 2012, and you are tuned into the Recording Lounge. My name's Kendall. I'm glad to have you guys here because we're taking a little bit of time to talk to Brian Deck, producer-engineer for lots of great records um, from artists like Owen, Iron and Wine, Counting Crows, um, Modest Mouse, tons of bands, more I guess you could call them in the indie rock genre, but um, still great sounding records for sure. If you haven't listened to some of these, um, go check out Underwater Sunshine from Counting Crows on uh, on YouTube or something or on Spotify and listen to uh, some of the songs in that record. Brian mixed that record and it uh, just sounds awesome. I posted one on the Facebook page for you guys to listen to. Anyway, we're going to be talking to him a little bit about uh, some of his production techniques and his style of producing and just his theories on the entire business of music. So lots of great info. Like I said, this is part one. Like our typical style, the first interview is going to be a little more about the uh, creative and production side. The second interview is going to be a little more about the technical and the specific, you know, what gear do you use? So let's get started. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us here. I mean, I know there's a lot of misinformation and stuff on the internet, you know, so I try to uh, put out good information when I can. And like, you know, the way I learned is to record other people and then talk to other people and read about other people and see other people working and just feel like sometimes you can't get good information if you just, you know, Google it all the time. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, there's, it's sort of like... You know, schools have grown up around the idea of learning how to record stuff right. But, yeah. you know, even that is a, a sort of an oral tradition. People choose their schools according to the people who are teaching there and their discographies and what they think they might learn from those people. Yeah. <clears throat> but for the most part, I mean, there there weren't many schools when I was learning this stuff. There was also no Internet. <laughs> so it was really very difficult yeah, yeah. Back then, you had to you had to really mine for it when you can find someone who knew something that you wanted to know. Yeah. So I think it's important, and I think it's important for me to share what it is that I know. So yeah, for sure. Okay. So first question: Do you find yourself doing like a lot of mixing or producing more? Because it seems some of your recent credits are mainly mixing. There was a period where I was trying to, you know, I, I've always enjoyed mixing, being yeah. very hands-on about that, so I've never really relinquished willingly that aspect of the job. But there was a time when I was trying to just think about the music and and have all the technical issues handled by someone else. So there was a period where I wasn't engineering my own recordings, mm -hmm. but that day is gone there's no budget to support that way working for me anymore anyway. Yeah, it seems like it's getting much less common to have, you know, it seems like it's like you have the the one guy doing all of it and then the mastering engineer. Like, it seems like that's yeah. really common. I mean, mm -hmm. and I mean, I... Although I, I have to say, I'm enjoying that again. I'm enjoying yeah. being at the helm and, and being in control of that stuff. And yeah. aside from being distracted by things like headphone mixes and ground hum yeah. uh, I can I can handle the sort of technical burden and still think about the music yeah for me uh, I've experienced that sort of frustration and on on not all sessions but on a few sessions where you know you're sitting there saying you know I really wish someone else would just record this so I could like go home <laughs> you know like, now most of the time I like I like kind of being I don't know, maybe I'm just like sort of a uh, control freak sometimes when it comes to bands, but like sometimes I feel like if I'm going to mix it, I like to kind of have a handle on the recording side, at least be there, you know, like, and and be around it. Because I feel like I'm kind of aggressive when it comes to recording, like I'm not afraid to commit to like a compressor on a vocal or like, you know, we happen to use this EQ on a guitar and we all like it, so, you know, that's okay with me. And it saves me time in the mix stage, too. For me, it's more than just speeding up the process. For me, it's making um, artistic commitments all along the way. Yeah. Decisions upon which you base more decisions. And hopefully you end up with a very committed sounding um, piece in yeah. the end. Something that um, is in some way radicalized. 
I don't like really normal sounding stuff. Yeah. So I think I think as far as uh, questions that you know I have for you, I'll probably just you know just start firing them off. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. So I'm going to be cresting on my coffee buzz in about 15 minutes. So you want to take full advantage of that. Great. Great. <laughs> I just I just poured my second cup, so gotcha. it's all downhill after the first buzz of the day. You know that. Yeah. All right. So first question that um, I get a lot is. How do you go about deciding on an instrument to record for a certain part? So, like, if you've got, if you're producing a record and you know, okay, we need an acoustic guitar for this part, like, how, how do you go about choosing an instrument? I mean, is it more of a decision of, like, what the artist just naturally likes to play? Or do you, you know, make pretty strong decisions about the sound of the instrument in the you know, in the fitting of the mix? Um, I have a feeling that my answer to that question is going to be real similar to my answers for a whole bunch of other questions, <laughs> which is, it depends. Yeah. It depends quite a bit on what my role is in the making of any particular recording at the time. There's some artists who I work with who are, you know, they, they have a very strong vision of what it is that they want to do. Sure. And it's strongly sketched out. They don't need or want much outside influence in things like um, trying to reimagine the instrumentation that they'd already sort of laid out for a song Mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, I will say it's less enjoyable for me to do jobs like that. I like when everybody involved in the recording is very open-minded and we all are trying to work toward the common goal of making something interesting and unfamiliar sounding to ourselves and other people. Um, While at the same time realizing that if we don't make, you know, a compelling, engaging piece uh, for, you know, the music community at large, then it's just going to be obscure and unheard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. So um, how do I go about making that decision? I'd say, you know, when I'm in a good situation where I'm enjoying being a part of the creative process, then I'm almost always trying to think of how to accomplish something in less in in a less obvious way. Okay. You know, if if you're coming up to the chorus of the song and the obvious thing to do is put doubled distorted guitar split left and right yeah. to really amp yeah. the thing up, I, I immediately think maybe glockenspiel instead, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I just always try to think of a different way to do that sort of thing. Um, if a song, sometimes a song demands that you adhere to a certain vernacular, mm-hmm. and uh, and the song will spank you and force you to do what it says. Yeah, and that especially, obvious. especially if it's, like, being made specifically for, like, a radio-type purpose, you know? Or, like, that's its that's its, like... The end of its life cycle is on the radio. Right. But um, anyway, well, that's that's very cool. I know that I know that on a lot of the productions that you've been involved with, there's, um, and I guess this is kind of what you're referring to. There's not a lot of wall of sound, you know, like there's not a whole lot of like doubled and tripled everything. When I double and triple something, I want it to be a real stark contrast to what else is going on. One major guiding principle for me in in making decisions about what to do in recording is that everything is of greater value um, in the presence of its opposite. Hmm. So if there isn't a whole lot of simple, um, direct, small sound, then big sound is just worthless. Yeah. If it's wall-to-wall big sound, or if it's the, the same... Um, you know, the same kind of verse, grooving along, rock band, chunk turn on all the Marshall stacks, and you're into the chorus kind yeah. of thing every time. Then yeah. it, it, it just is not surprising. It's not delightful. It's not engaging. It turns me off immediately when I hear yeah. that thing, unless, unless it's a fucking amazing song. Yeah. I had to admit to myself the other day, I was driving in the car, and the new Green Bay single came on, and <laughs> as much as I would love to not like them anymore, they just always write great fucking melodies. You know, I haven't even listened to Green Day, and I don't even know how long, but I can still remember, like, stuff from Dookie, and just, mm-hmm. you know, just, like, in my brain, like, permanently stuck from 
days when I used to listen to a lot of punk and like pop punk back when like the Ataris were in existence. <laughs> I was uh, gonna say, I mean, that was a long ass time ago. Yeah, and that's not even like it was their first record. Yeah, yeah. They are old. Yeah, <laughs> I, and they still, but you know, why do they have staying power? Yeah, that's and that's an impressive thing. And there's not a lot of bands that really have that sort of longevity, like most bands that come on onto the scene are here for a couple years and then completely vanish like completely vanish yeah well there's different there's different kinds of artists or i'm not even sure that artist has become a generic term for someone who plies the trade of entertainer yeah um all right so another question that i have for you i've got a couple questions about engineering first and then we'll move on to some mixing do you have like some some go-to mics and or preamps that you generally will start with or is it always a continual like experimentation um there's definitely things that i go to and uh my home studio engine in chicago just recently closed down oh really and so i'm finding myself not in possession of some of my go-to tools mm. and in one sense that's kind of a bummer yeah it does slow shit down a little bit not to have that microphone that you just know is going to work mm-hmm. sitting right there but um you know it's interesting too with the record that i'm mixing i've been mixing for the past week and i'll, I'll be mixing it as soon as we're done talking today um it's the first full record that I did at another studio in a long, long time. I'm finding as I mix it that I made all these decisions from uh, an amount of critical listening that I hadn't had to do in a long time. Yeah. And so even though I was dealing with a lot of tools that I was unfamiliar with, I think the engineering of what I did is a step above maybe what what would have occurred if I'd done it at Engine. Gotcha. Just so you, because you kind of weren't in your comfort zone and couldn't just settle with something as easily. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't just say, you know, this microphone, this preamp, this compressor, I want to be up and running in five minutes. Yeah. You know, it was like, I got to hear a couple microphones. I got to hear a couple preamps. I got to try a couple compressors. Yeah. Okay, this really works. We can move ahead. It took 15 or 20 minutes, but it had to. Yeah. But then hopefully that pays off in the end. You know, you like the sounds better. You have more connection to it while mixing or for whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, for a lot of reasons, this has been a a very gratifying thing to mix. Like you and I were talking about a short while ago, a lot of decisions were made ahead of time. And, you know, it just pushed the faders up and the shit's coming up the way I want to hear it. It was recorded to be almost finished so someone was in my studio at the end of the mix yesterday visiting and we were looking at what was going on and we both kind of went wow there's almost no plugins on this thing and it's true it's like in in 12 tracks of drums i think i had four plugins running wow yeah you can say to yourself you know i can focus more on the creative you know the balances and just that that sort of part of the mixing process rather than all the well I guess since nothing is punchy and now I have to compress everything or whatever totally yeah. yeah what I try to be listening for at the mix stage is what can I get rid of because I think the more direct and simple a soundscape is the more impact everything in it has and so I'm always trying to you know can I do without the second harmony in the first chorus yeah. probably yeah. you know you know, whatever I can get rid of, whatever I can cull, I think makes the whole thing stronger. Yeah. I know that wasn't what the question was, but the caffeine's really kicking in now. <laughs> no, but it, I mean, it's, it, it's so true. I mean, it, with the digital world, it's it's impossibly easy to just add an infinite number of things and just keep them and think, oh, well, I've got a hundred tracks. I guess I need them all. I mean, yeah. when getting back to the... So what was the question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I totally just... I was, I'm, it's so easy to get off on a tangent. The original question was about, you know, picking a mic or whatever. Could you give some examples of maybe some things that you would go to in a natural situation? Okay, yeah. Um, we had a few microphones at Engine that were just amazing, and some of them you can 
pretty readily find in other studios, and some of them are more esoteric. We had a Neumann U367, hmm. which um, sounds like maybe it's just some version of a regular 67. Mm-hmm. The, the 300 designation was the designation given to microphones that Neumann built for the uh, for ORTF, for French radio. Huh. Um, but it's not just a U67 built for French radio. It's a really different microphone. I'm not the guy who can tell you what's so different about it. It's, I'd say, the most amazing large diaphragm tube condenser mic that we had there and that I've ever used. Really? The 67 is, is uh, sort of rolled off in the top end, very smooth, and this was more glistening and wide open hmm. on the top and uh, just very accurate through the mid-range and down through the lower mid yeah. and um, less colored but but amazingly lively. It's just a great microphone. And so that would be a go-to for acoustic guitar. We also had a lot of KM56s and KM54s, which are the, yeah, the noise, tubes small right, yeah. diaphragms. Um, so it was usually one of those three. The 54 is cardioid, and then the 56 is switchable three pattern. Gotcha. The, the 54 has a gold sputtered diaphragm and is a little more sensitive and more brilliant, and the 56 has a nickel diaphragm. It's a little smoother and a little less sensitive. Gotcha. So either of those, I mean, I guess I guess tube, you prefer tube mics on acoustic guitar then? Tend to, I tend to, although I, I did a record not too long ago where none of that shit was working in the context of the music. Yeah. And there was a 57 on a stand <laughs> on an electric guitar, like right before the acoustic. And I was like, here, let's put this on the 12th fret. I'm going to crank it. Yeah. We're going to distort it. And it was... It was like, damn, that's it. That's the sound, and yeah. that was the acoustic sound for yeah. a lot of songs on that record. Cool. Now, what about what about um, like for a compressor on an acoustic guitar? Because we talked a little bit about like committing to a decision. Do you, do you compress or EQ acoustic guitar on the way in? Um, I usually <clears throat> work a lot with mic placement to avoid having to EQ it, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's that's a pretty malleable thing. I mean, there's a lot of different sounds available coming off the front or the side or the top of an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and and you can if you know what that acoustic has fit in with within the song you can move the microphone around and and get what you need and it's nice to avoid you know the phase shift of eq yeah and going through more transformers and more amplifiers and more shit that makes noise yeah so i try to avoid eq on acoustic guitar um but I always, almost always, no, always, <laughs> put a fair amount of compression on it. At Engine, we had a pair of original um, Yuri LA3s, mm-hmm. and I love those. They're very transparent, and I like the aggressiveness of the sound of them as well. Yeah. And so I, I usually use both of them in series. Neither one would be metering more than about a dB of compression, which, yeah. you know, it's kind of a lie. It's doing more than that. Yeah, but, yeah. But because uh, the, meter, the end result yeah. is, is something that sounds pretty compressed, um, but in, in a pretty transparent way, you don't hear it pumping. Yeah. And I just like that. I do the same thing with vocals a lot with those same pair of compressors. So you run them like for a, like a mono mic on an acoustic guitar. You'll run both LA LA threes in series, one after the other. Right. Pretty much set I'll, to. I'll yeah. never do more than a mono mic on acoustic guitar. Yeah. Unless I'm doing something that's just, uh, you know, it's just going to be guitar and vocal. Yeah. So what about, so like vocal, what about a vocal? Like as far as mics or, or pre's that you like on a vocal? I'll spend um, a long time, I try to do this toward the front of the project to spend a long time choosing the right vocal mic for a singer. Um usually set up the first four or five microphones in whatever microphone collection I'm working with that seem like, you know, from past experience might work for this person. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll shoot out those microphones on, I won't say, like, the most neutral um, mic pre-available, 
but I'll make sure that I use the same mic pre for each one of them. It's, gotcha. I'm probably usually already trying to imagine which mic pre it's going to be, but I'll patch each one into the same mic pre, and we'll record some the same portion of the same song on each microphone, and then the singer will come back in the control room, and we'll A-B those, and we'll choose from those microphones which one we like the best. And then something will come to mind about the way that it's sounding, which will cause me to want to hear the microphone we picked shot out against another three or four microphones. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then we'll do that. And, you know, there's, there's usually, at, at Engine, there was always, you know, almost always uh, a Telefunken U47 Um we didn't have an AKG C12, but we had a C24, mm-hmm. so I would set that up use one capsule of that. Yeah. Uh, we had a 251. We had the 367 that I was t- telling you about before, mm-hmm. which is a great-sounding vocal mic. Um, I always set up a U87 as a control mm-hmm. experiment, and it frequently, it, it it's always the bridesmaid, never the bride. You yeah. Know? yeah. It never wins hands down but it's such a great microphone. Never sucks, yeah. Yeah. You know, I may or may not, in contention with those microphones, put up a ribbon or a dynamic, mm-hmm. but I might, depending on the style of music and the sound of the singer's voice. Yeah. Um, I'll usually, after we choose the main vocal microphone, have a second or third setup going to be able to do a little bit different sounding thing. I like the Coles 4038 a lot. Yeah. We had a lot of different. We had a lot of different ribbon microphones, but that was usually the one that won. Yeah. Um, and then we had a CD microphone that I used quite a bit too. Or I might take a fifty-seven and put it through a guitar amp. Actually, on endless number of days, we ended up choosing the Telefunken U forty-seven as the main vocal mic for that whole record. And I had a, a, a Shure SM fifty-seven set up right next to it, so he sang into both at the same time. The fifty-seven was going through a Fender Twin. Hmm. Just to get that sort of different texture. Different kind of fidelity, a different kind of presence, and it's there on every single song, just Hmm. mixed in a little bit or a little more pronounced on some of them. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting sound. I like that. I haven't done it enough since. I bet that's I bet that's that helps with sort of that like natural like breathiness that kind of his voice has, you know, that sort of It gave it yeah, it gave it a kind of solidity in the mix. Yeah. maybe wouldn't have come necessarily from just a good microphone and compression and EQ. Yeah. It really just sat there, you know. Now when you when you're ABing all these mics on a vocal, um, you know, do you do you sort of have the singer um sing at different distances from each one, like whichever you think, you know, like this particular mic sounds a little better a little farther away or do you pretty much set them up almost the same distance from each one? Well, I guess the default is you set them up. Actually, what ends up happening is you set them up, all of the microphones in line, and then the guy just carries the pop filter from microphone to microphone. Mm-hmm. And so the the singer is going to naturally set the pop filter the same distance from the microphone each time. But if they're getting too much proximity effect, I'll have them back off a little bit. Or if it doesn't sound intimate enough, I'll have them pull up a little bit. So gotcha. I... I do make that adjustment with my ears. I feel if you're going to compare apples to apples, you have to kind of make sure that you're addressing each microphone yeah. correctly. I know it's sort of odd to ask this, but it's something I feel like is uh, is ignored a lot when you're trying to find the right placement for the mic on a vocal. I mean, is that primarily what you're listening to is for like the intimacy versus the proximity effect versus like those factors, or is it more of a, a, an overall tone thing? It can be any of the above. Gotcha. And once again, it depends on the music. Mm -hmm. Very aggressive music or very intimate music or, you know, what is it going to be? What does it have to fit in with? Can I imagine this working within that context? So I'm just listening and thinking. Yeah. Um, A big concern of mine, and I, I can't really say that I've ever nailed this, but a big concern of mine, I try to work on it all the time, is um, sibilance. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to use as little DSing as I possibly can when I'm mixing a vocal. And um, it's just really fucking hard. 
Yeah. I, I never had anyone show me what the right way to do that is. How do you minimize siblings in a vocal recording? Yeah. Because you get started. close and it might sound intimate, but then the S's are out of control, and then you move two back, and then it doesn't sound intimate anymore, but then the S's are fine. And it all changes from singer to singer. You know, yeah. how, where they place their tongue yeah. in, at the back of their teeth and on their hard palate is really, really different from person to person. Yeah. And plosives as well, although I, I will say that, that that's the one place where maybe I'll, I'll give instead of take, mm -hmm. because working in Pro Tools, it's pretty easy to go in and fix plosives. Yeah, dip them if down. Everything whatever. else about the singer on the microphone is right. Yeah. Now, um, what what about pre's like for a for a vocal mic? Any any vocal mic? I mean, do you t prefer? Do you gravitate towards like more of a nevish or more of a tube or something even totally different? I'm open to listening. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> tend toward transformer coupled inputs on mic pre's. Although I gotta say, this I was working at Electrical Audio in Chicago on this last record and. Uh, Steve has Neotech consoles in both rooms there, and yeah. they're famously electronically balanced consoles. And um, for the lead vocal on this record, after having listened to stuff through some custom mic pre's that the tech had made there, which were kind of um, API-ish, mm -hmm. some Neve mic pre's that they had available, and I'm trying to remember what else, but I chose the Neotech. Hmm, it's pretty rare. 35-year-old <laughs> electronically balanced IC chip preamp yeah. sounded best on this guy's voice. So hmm. I try to be open-minded about it, but yeah. um, I, I, I'm less uh, dogmatic about wanting to choose something with a transformer on it for vocals as I am for drums. Drums just don't sound right to me without a transformer. Yeah, I've had, and it took me sort of a long time to realize that, but, um, you know, like when you're having a really hard time getting a snare sound, check and see if there's a transformer on your mic pre. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes all the fucking difference in the world for me. In I see, this is kind of an odd question about about vocals and acoustic guitar. Do you prefer um, on sources like that on like a, an acoustic guitar or let's say on an Iron and Wine type situation or something that's like a singer songwriter um, where it's mainly a vocal and acoustic guitar, not necessarily a full band mixed in. Or even with the band mixed in, do you prefer to record those in a tighter space or a larger room? I prefer to make an interesting sounding recording. <laughs> Good and answer. And so it depends on, you know, the character of the record that we're trying to make, what studio is available, where are we, what do the rooms are available sound like. Yeah. I guess, you know provide yourself total flexibility later on, you probably want to be in a dead space. Mm. And in, in a situation where you don't have a cool-sounding larger room, you know, go for the dead space, and you can always create it later, yeah. whether it's through reamping or alti-verb or mm. whatever. Yeah. But I prefer to make a cool-sounding recording in a cool space, and that's just kind of, I don't care how big or small it is, I just want it to be cool. Yeah. For sure, I've always sort of been a Counting Crows fan. Well, the the record just sounds—I don't know—it sounds great to me. You know, in in a word, it sounds great. Uh, you know, it, it feels good. The songs feel—they have this energy about them. You know, they feel like it sounds like they're having fun making music. You know, and that's that's a good thing to hear. Um, yeah, and, I agree. I think that they had a lot of fun. I know they set up and did it live. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool project. I mean, Die Hard. Counting Crows fans always get a few covers at the show. And so, you know, they've all heard a lot of these songs as done by the Counting Crows before, but I think the general public doesn't realize what huge and literate music fans these people are. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see them continue this on because I think that they they have a lot to offer these songs, and I think that the exposure that they give to these songs does a lot of good for the culture of music in general i think like you said i think it's it's fun for them yeah my cool. experience with adam as a singer by the way is this guy saying a live vocal take with every single live band take in the studio for every single song and we 
took over 50% of the final vocal comp from those takes. Gotcha. That dude is the best, most committed singer that I've ever recorded. Very cool. And it, it's amazing. When you're comping, you base your decisions on the emotional content of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, not the you pitch. You never, yeah. ever have to think about pitch. Yeah, well, that's cool. It's worth mentioning, too, with this band, like... They're such good musicians, and it's such a good band, and they've a lot of them, I guess all the current members of the band have been playing together for a long time now, you yeah. know, and obviously some of them for a really long time. Yeah. None of them ever gives the same performance twice, and that's sort of a cliche thing to say. Yeah. Like, you know, I think, like, sometimes when I hear people say that about some people, I'm thinking, yeah, well, maybe there's tiny little incremental adjustments from performance to performance but with these guys there can be a huge difference from performance to performance and it's part of the process and i think that that's an aspect of the process of making music in the studio that you know that that aspect of the art has become de-emphasized in pursuit of perfection yeah you get a lot of bands that will do take after take after take but they're not trying different things with the song and exploring what can be done with the song. They're just trying to get a perfect take. Yeah. And and perfect by the standards that they, for, for whatever reason, have set. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be playing right now, you know, and I'm not playing it. Or Right. Now, maybe they did all the experimentation in rehearsal, but um, come on. Yeah. I don't have rehearsal, <laughs> yeah. so... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That, I guess that's part of the excitement, you know? I mean, I, I feel like when people go see a band live, if it sounded just like the record, they'd almost be, like, bored. Yeah, I, mean, I know I am. Because, I mean, they're not going to sit there and be like, man, that vocal sounds too compressed, you know? I mean, they don't they don't even know, <laughs> you know, what that what that is. You know, and hopefully they don't care. Yeah. You don't want them to care about that. You want them to listen to something, whether it's live or on a record, and go, wow, that's cool, yeah. or... You know, geez, that sounds really sort of predictable and normal. Yeah. That's what I hope for in a listener. Yeah. I hope for a listener who wants to hear things the way I want to hear things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You always always want that. Um, all right, so let's get back to some, some engineering questions, I guess. On drums, do you, in general, would you find yourself gravitating towards a larger mic setup on drums or try to be more minimal? Always, always, always try to be minimal. Yeah. Always. Now, there's types of music. If you're going to be recording very dense, loud music, it's hard to make a minimal miking drum sound be articulate in the mix. Yeah. Especially on the toms. Mm -hmm. You know, that's hard to do. Now, I would argue that it's more important to make an interesting, cool-sounding recording yeah. than a recording where you can hear every 30-second note that the drummer plays. Yeah. yeah. It's really, you know... I think even when you've recorded the drums in a way that obscures some of the amazing technical facility of a given player, I think that the general gesture of everything that they do is coming through and having its impact on the music. And... There's, to me, um, too much of a danger in making a sterile recording mm. to to err on the side of hedging one's bets and setting up 24 microphones and making sure that everything is super clean and every transient is preserved. And uh, what happens to me when I record shit that way is that I mix it that way. Yeah. And then it's like, those are never the drum sounds that anyone asks me, how did I get that? Yeah. Nobody ever asked me that stuff. Yeah, because they know. They know when you hear that perfect, clear drum sound, they're like, oh, you probably used two kick mics and snare top and bottom and all the tom mics and the hat mic and the, you know, and they right. you hear all the little things. and, and But the song, you know, the songs where they ask me, how did I get that, are like... Um, Things that, there's a song called Things I Don't Remember on the Ugly Casanova record. Mm -hmm. It was an M249, five feet in front of the kick, and a Royer 121 in a 
drywalled living room with a seven foot ceiling. Huh. You know, and that's all it was. Two microphones. Yeah. And that's a really interesting sounding recording yeah. in a really unpredictably weird sounding shitty room with a half ass <laughs> drum kit and uh but it rocked the shit out of the song. Yeah. From that point the likelihood that you're gonna end up with something with a lot of character is very high in yeah. a situation like that. And that's what you want. Yeah. Nobody I mean, sets out to, to make a record and say, Well, I'd really like this to be bland yeah. and uh predictable and just like every demo I've ever heard. You know, <laughs> no one says that to themselves. For sure. So why people set themselves up for failure by making a pristine recording of every individual element in a drum kit and then expect themselves to, to pull the magic rabbit out of the hat later and turn it into something interesting. I don't know. Why fucking do that to yourself? Yeah. And I bet... You could have just recorded it cool. Yeah, I bet, and because you, you mentioned earlier that in a mix you're asking yourself, what can I take out? I bet in a situation, you know, where you get something to be mixed, where you might have 15 drum mics, you're probably very strictly looking at that saying, what can I take out to make this more interesting? Absolutely. I did that on the Counting Crows record. Gotcha. Yeah, so... And that stuff was well recorded in a way that if I had, a, you know, a full maxed out microphone selection, you know, and it was demanded of me to do it. They did it right. They did it well. They had great microphones, Neve console, mm. you know, multiple 1176s at their disposal. Everything was done really well. But I still, I still said, what can I do without? Yeah. You know, because this one set of overhead sounds awesome. Um, there's a couple other things at play there as well. One of them is, you know, the more microphones you set up on any one single sound source, the more phase cancellation you're getting between them. Mm -hmm. That's a given. Yeah. You know, if you have two microphones in two different places on a single source of sound, you've got phase problems mm -hmm. or phase differences. I guess it's, you know, it's not right to call them problems. You might like that sound. You might like it to be comb filtered. <laughs> but th that exists physically as a situation you have to deal with as soon as you have more than one microphone. So if you have... 12 microphones on a drum kit and you know you, you have to realize that the microphone you have on the second floor tom it also has a lot of influence on the first floor tom how that sounds and depending on where the cymbals are positioned a great deal of influence on the cymbal sound and depending on how you point that microphone the likelihood is that it's pointing in the general direction of the snare drum and so you know, all of a sudden, that's secondarily a cymbal microphone, and and it has another role as a, a sort of room mic on the snare drum, and and that's that's sort of approaching drums. I'm a drummer, so I've thought hmm. about this a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, the drums are not a bunch of different instruments. I'm not a multi instrumentalist because I'm a drummer. Yeah. And so that should be experienced as a single instrument and should be mic'd as a single instrument. And, um, and I, it just isn't often enough. Yeah. And the other thing that's going on with, with it's the same issue between multiple microphones on a drum kit, multiple microphones on an acoustic guitar, especially if you're going to endeavor to mix those in some kind of stereo spectrum, yeah. is that I like... Stereo. I like stereo mixes. Mm -hmm. I like mixes that make creative and effective use of the stereo soundstage, but it's much harder to make a good stereo mix if every single sound source that you're sticking in there is already stereo. Yeah. You know, you end up with a good stereo mix if everything that you put in there is mono and you can position them around mm -hmm. and populate the, the soundstage in front of you one point at a time yeah. instead of saying okay well my acoustic guitar is going to go from you know 75 left to 13 right yeah good luck yeah for sure good luck having anyone perceive that after you put in the piano which you've mic'd in stereo yeah. and the uh, electric guitar with your stereo room mics and your 15 fucking microphones on the drum <laughs> yeah yeah 
and the stereo chorus that for some reason you're trying to put on the bass because you love the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because you can... People will imagine in their mind the difference between... You know, they, they listen to a mix and they're like, oh, it sounds huge. And you think for a moment, oh, maybe, you know, the, that piano sounds huge because it's recorded in stereo. And it's like, you know, but I remember I remember reading this article about a guy who was talking about how one of the worst mixes he's ever had to deal with is one like you're mentioning where everything was recorded in stereo. And he was saying, mm-hmm. you know, he, get, he pulls up the piano and it's like so close mic'd on the piano that the left the low notes are almost completely in the left ear and the high notes are almost completely in the right ear. And the mid-range of the piano, like the middle, you know, octaves are like weird and not really there. And and he was like, it was a disaster. He was like, I, I almost didn't even know what to do with it. So he said he ended up pan- hard panning the mics and pumping it out into a room and recording it with one mic, <laughs> you know? And just uh-huh. you know, and just saying that's that's a piano sound. I don't. I'm not gonna deal with this too. You know, this weird thing where you've got a full band, but this piano is an inch in front of your face. I mean, that's so that's so counterintuitive. Yeah. In terms of you know, psychoacoustically, what is the experience for the listener then? You have this ginormously powerful drum kit with all this compression and these loud um, electric guitars, whether they're distorted or not and then you you, you're somehow being asked to believe that in addition to all that your head is in the middle of the piano (laughs) yeah yeah with all the low notes on your left and all the high notes on your right it just doesn't compute and so your brain says this is unnatural this doesn't actually exist yeah yeah it's um that that's interesting because it brings up one of my one of my favorite things to to really think about when talking about the subject of engineering is, you know, how you're going to engineer the whole song as a whole. So, you know, you can sit there and get this amazing electric guitar sound, you know, but in the context of the mix, it might be terrible. And that that blows me away because of the same phenomenon that we're talking about with drums and with piano, that you're expected, I mean, it's um, it's like, why is it expected that every single instrument has to sound like huge you know and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be expected that way um because as as we know the more elements that are in a mix the smaller each one can be anyway having the guitar huge and the drums huge and the piano huge just doesn't even i mean sure maybe the stereo piano thing might work if it's a piano and a vocal maybe but even then, I don't want the the left hand on my left ear, and you know what I mean. Like, that yeah, is, it's very distracting for me to be stuffed into a piano like that. I, yeah. I don't like it. Yeah, you shouldn't be making records for engineers. You're making a record for someone to perceive, and so everything you record needs to be in the context of how people are going to perceive it, not just how awesome can I make it sound. <clears throat> I know what you're saying, um, and I agree. I think that. You know, that, that's specifically the territory where engineering and production, um, where the Venn diagram coincides. Yeah. Because you can't engineer something to sound right unless the musical decisions have been made well. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, you're so far ahead of the game if you've come up with a plan for making a song that involves everything working together and you understand the pieces of the puzzle ahead of time and you know how and why you think that's compelling. And I'm not saying that you want to do so much pre-production that you, you're hamstrung in the studio and you can't have any experimentation. Yeah. But I, I think if you've done that amount of pre-production, then you know a good idea when you hear it. Yeah. Whereas experimentation without the the framework of knowing what's expected to begin with is, uh, you know, at best, it's just a lot more time-consuming. At worst, it's so confusing that it ruins the experience and the product. Yeah. So are you you of the notion that, um, I guess I should say, are you of the persuasion that you know, since in a mic in a miking situation on any source, drums or an amp or whatever, 
that the distance from the source really kind of determines its distance in the mix or like some people you know some people might argue that you know if the only reason to like the only reason to really mic something super close like a guitar amp is for separation purposes you know do you yeah. do you kind of follow along with that idea well yes and no i've read people say things like that where I think sometimes when they're saying that stuff, they're just the kind of person who speaks hyperbole and uh, comes yeah. off sort of an angry person <laughs> about about engineering conventions. I'm thinking about Nick Lowe especially. Hmm. You know, when asked about his recordings and asked about his production on Elvis Costello records, which I think are brilliant. Hmm. Yeah, Some of my favorite stuff ever, especially Blood and Chocolate, I think is his masterpiece. Um, but he talks about how you know you you don't you don't just EQ a guitar you EQ the band or you know and <laughs> it's not actually true yeah you know because you do EQ the guitar but yeah, yeah you do yes and you do mic things closely and it's true perhaps that as a guitar player if your experience is mostly one of playing live music. The way that you make love with your guitar is you stand in front of the amplifier and you play it. Yeah. And your experience of that music is from five to seven feet back. Yeah. Um, then it might lead you to have this opinion that that's how the shit should be recorded. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that you want the stuff to be perceived as powerful and live. Yeah. You don't necessarily want to make the most ultimate live recording possible, which would be, you know, one single mono microphone in a space and array the musicians around that and go. Yeah. You know, that was effective for certain kinds of music at the beginning of the 20th century, but you're not going to make the best recording of a lot of kinds of music that way. Yeah. You know, we've got all kinds of preconceptions about what music should sound like from the history of rock and roll that we listen to, you know, from fucking Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry through the Beatles, through Led Zeppelin and Bob Marley. And, you know, it's all relevant. And it all, it all has made cultural impressions on us about how we want to hear shit. And so we have to be familiar with how all those different things are done and whether or not we think that they're, applicable to the music we're making at the moment. Yeah. Generally yeah. speaking, I do try to mic stuff in the way that I want it to appear in the mix, if that's the actual question you're asking. Yeah. You know, even if a... Because, like, when you think of a band performing, I don't... At least when I think of a band performing, I think of a concert. I don't think of just going to their garage, you know what I mean, and hearing a, Counting Crows in their garage. You know, so... Because by that logic, you would never be able to hear the vocal. Ever. Like, because there, right. there wouldn't be a mic on anything, you know, so already that's its own, and the vocal's already the, the anomaly there, where it's like, that's never going to be louder than the drums, like, I mean, so that's already fake, if you want to consider it fake by, like, the purest standard, you know? Um, sure. And so, from that, from that aspect, it's like, well, sure, the guitar player is hearing their amp on stage, but it's also going through a PA. I mean, no matter how, I mean, if it's a big concert, it is, you know what I mean? And, I mean, if it's a, if it's a big gig where there's 20,000 people or 50,000 people or whatever, you're still going to mic everything, and you're just going to put it through the system. Because, again, when you got the bass amp and the guitar amp and all that, the kick isn't going to sound huge. But at the concert, it's got to sound huge, you know? Again, so this is what I mean, where, where some people will pay lip service whenever they get the chance to doing stuff as naturally and simply as possible. Um, whereas when operating professionally, they don't actually do that. You yeah. know, keep on Burnett when he was talking about the making of the Old Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, mm-hmm. talked about how the, the most compelling way to make recorded music for human beings is to put one Neumann U-47 up on the stage and just have your singers gather around that and play. And that's going to be the most compelling piece of music. And Pretty bold statement that may there. be yeah. true <laughs> for him, and that may be true for some other people, but that's way too general of a statement to make. And... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the Wallflowers record wasn't made with a single U forty seven. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm under the I'm under the persuasion that every single instrument is 
in one way or another designed to be a solo instrument. You could fill, if you wanted to, you could fill up an entire mix with a vocal and a drum kit. Easy. You know, but that's why we have EQs and different mics in the first place is because you can't just, like, fit 20 things into a mix and not have to touch them. Like, it just seems like it never happens where, you know, you don't, don't put any EQ, you don't put any anything, you don't pan anything. It's all just mono. All the mics are mono. They're all up the center. I mean, it just doesn't doesn't really work that way. Yeah, well, shit ends up sounding like an Alan Lomax recording from the 1940s if you do that. Yeah. Which is cool, but it's not what you're after all the time. You yeah. have this whole history of recorded music that is, you know, informing you, the artist, and the eventual listening public about what they might want to be hearing. And so you, you're, you're fitting yourself into that cultural framework. Yeah. You're not just making a dogmatic statement that the the most the most powerful and relevant musical experience is a live experience and the closest possible replication to that is the most powerful thing you can be doing. Well thank you guys for taking a listen today to the interview between me and Brian. Um, we've got more info coming to you in a little bit. I've got to edit the second half of the interview and um, I just special thanks again to Brian for taking the time to answer some questions and really sort of open up about a lot of his methods and ideologies on these things. So the usual stuff. If you have any questions, comments, um, feel free to email me. That's recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. You can check out the blog over at recordingloungeblogspotcom And the Facebook page is facebook.com slash recordinglounge. Um, again, thanks for all the listeners, and thanks to all the comments on the iTunes page. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks for all the emails I've been getting with questions and comments. Feel free to uh, contact me about any freelance mixing and mastering, which I also do. Um, I can give you a great rate. You can send me the tracks, and we can get you taken care of. Again, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, stay tuned for the next interview. Talk to you guys soon.